my friends, and welcome to the Experience Our Industry podcast. Uh, I've had some pretty special guests over the last few years, but none is more special to me than this one. We are here today with Dr. Jerusha Greenwood. Hi, Dr. Rue. Hi. It's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in a couple of hours. <laughs> it's good <laughs> to see you too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to, um, as everyone knows, or as as most people listening to this podcast knows, um, uh, Dr. Rue is not my sister. Dr. Rue and I are... Um, our uh, partners, our life partners, our spouses, um, and uh, we have been at this thing for, um, what is it now, Jerusha? Um, how long have we uh, been together as a team? Oh, wow. So we got married in 2006, but we've known each other right. since 2000. Three or four, I three can't. Three or four, yeah, three. Three I, I think or we four met in two thousand three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. By the time this, uh, by the time this podcast airs, we will have um, just had our seventeenth wedding anniversary, and so uh, we've spent sixteen of them here in lovely uh, San Luis Obispo on the Central Coast, and so I thought this would be. Great timing to uh, schedule a podcast with um, uh, with uh, Dr. Jerusha Greenwood, and it also ended up um, being timely because this past week, um, Dr. Rue, uh, as she has become so affectionately known by our students, um, was elected as the chair of the Academic Senate at Cal Poly, and so in addition to being a professor in our department and experience industry management. She also has or, or will be taking on that expanded leadership role in July of 2023. And um so, so very proud of you and um such a such a great honor. Um and uh yeah, just want to say congratulations officially here on the podcast. Thank you. And it, it is a, a great honor to be able to serve the university in this way. I'm very excited for the opportunity, a little humbled by it, um, but I'm also excited to take on the challenge. Yeah. Right on, right on. And we'll eventually get there. So um, you're going to have to keep listening, folks, if you want to know what an academic Senate chair does, um, because we're, we'll eventually get there. But we want to go back in mm -hmm. time first and and let the listeners um, get to know you a little bit better. Um, Jerusha. So so tell us, um, tell us where you are originally from. Where did you grow up? Um, and uh, and we'll go from there. You know, I know okay. all of these questions, of course, but I do. I've got to ask them anyway. That's okay. Um, so I was, um, my family happened to live in Salt Lake City, Utah when I was born. My dad, um, both of my parents are military brats, and my dad at the time um, had left the military and was, um, I actually restate that. They grew up as military brats, and then my dad was in the military. And that caused them to move quite a, around quite a bit because of his assignments. And then once he retired from the military, he um, went to work for the federal government. And when I was born, he was um, 
finishing his undergraduate degree at the University of Utah and working for the federal government. So we just happened to live in Salt Lake City at the time. And I live there. I have some little memories of living there, uh, mostly of our house and the street we lived on. And then we moved um, when I was three to Henderson, Nevada, because he worked for he had a very um, flashy job. It's called an auditor. And it mainly means that you have to be really good at accounting. Right. And um, he um, he was an accountant. He was a, an auditor for the Air Force. And we we lived close or relatively close to um, Nellis Air Force Base. And and he worked there for a while. And my mom um, worked in an OBGYN's office. And I just remember it being hot in the summer. It was hard to play outside. And mm-hmm. um and that's why we had year-round school. And mm-hmm. but I do remember I have fond memories of playing in the desert. Um, I've always loved the desert. I'm I'm not a big fan of hot weather, but I love the desert. And so I remember playing outside quite a bit um there, playing with horned lizards and looking for snakes and yeah, generally just just having fun. Um, then we moved to California after my dad's next assignment. We lived in a little town called Calamesa. Um, it's on the it's off of the I-10 freeway. People who drive from Los Angeles to Palm Springs probably see a sign for it on the way out there. Yeah. And um, and and you know, it's it's kind of just me hopping from state to state until right, we, right. we we did a circle. We moved after that. We moved back to Salt Lake City, and that's where we actually lived for quite a long time. I was able to finish junior high, high school, and my undergraduate and my master's degree there. Um, and um, then moved to North Carolina. Go you. Where I started. Right. I know. Well, let's, go let's you. Well, up. yeah, let's back up a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, sorry. So tell us, um, tell us about uh, your, your brothers. Um, so you, you grew up as, oh. a, you grew up as a youngest, as the youngest. Uh, I did. Right? And you had a couple of uh, older brothers who I, I'm sure did not pick on little <laughs> sister at all, like looked after little sister didn't they? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my brothers are eight and 10 years older than I, than I am. They're Rick and Chris. Rick is the oldest and Chris is the second oldest. Mm-hmm. And um, they actually, because of the age difference, um, they did have to babysit me, but that was pretty mm-hmm. much benign neglect. I don't know if you <laughs> ever had to watch any of your younger siblings, but it was mainly just ignoring, ignoring and hoping nothing bad happened. Um um, but yes, they're, they're both, um, they're great. We've actually become much closer as we've gotten older. Um, and, um, Rick is a computer programmer in Phoenix, Arizona, and mm-hmm. Chris works in HR and he lives up in Gilroy, um, in California, which is nice. Cause they're, we're all relatively close to each other. And, um, my mom who lives in Henderson, Nevada is kind of in between all of us, which is kind of the center of the triangle. Right on, right on. And um, so moving back full circle, you know, you, you moved back yeah. and you got to 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 um to re-experience Salt Lake City. And um, mm-hmm. um I, I what was um what was that? What was your I mean it wasn't necessarily your childhood, your adolescence. What was your adolescence mm-hmm. like growing up in Salt Lake City? I mean, I obviously we know that um that uh the church of latter-day saints lds is is very is very mm-hmm. big there in salt lake city but um mm-hmm. your family you're fa- you're you're not from a mormon family so what was uh what was that like growing up there in in salt lake city during your formative years um i actually think 
um, for much of it, it was, it was a great experience. It was, um, we lived in a neighborhood on uh, one of the hillsides or mountainsides in Salt Lake Valley called Mount Olympus. It's part of the Wasatch range. Mm -hmm. And I grew up, um, in a, you know, middle class, upper middle class neighborhood. We, um, in Salt Lake city, um, the, the influence of the church is such that you live in these communities called wards. Um, and all the wards have a local, you would call it a church, but it's, it's in the LDS church, it's called a ward house. And then they're all organized kind of a more around a more central church, which is called a stake. Mm-hmm. And, um, some of my first experiences with recreation as an after school thing, um, mm-hmm. is actually through the LDS church. I was signed up to do, um, club volleyball with the local church or with the local ward. And so, um, and there was leagues, we went to tournaments. Um, I actually grew to really love playing volleyball because of the, the, um, opportunity to engage in basically for Salt Lake city, public parks and recreation there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the great thing, um, and I, I, you know, I had really strong friendships to my best friends, Angie and Chowie. I met when I was in junior high and we're still good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we were part of the group of kids that, um, did not identify as LDS and, um, we all kind of, you know, group of 20 or so kids at our, our junior high and then our high school kind of found each other because we had that in common. Mm-hmm. And, um, we came from all over the political spectrum, our little group, political spectrum, ethnicity, um, <laughs> socioeconomic status. We had this, this group of people who, um, had this thing in common that we weren't Mormons. So we were p- automatically part of kind of a subculture. Right. Um, but, but living in, Lake, yeah, we did. We, we really built a sense of community around that too. And, um, and we would go to coffee houses. The the at the time the rare rare coffee house in Salt Lake. There were two right. or three. I think I can remember that we kind of haunted because coffee isn't something that's that's big among among members of the LDS Church. It's a a hot beverage, um, which is those are generally looked down on. Uh-huh. And um and so we um we we just had a a great time kind of forming that bond. The the greatest thing I think about living in Salt Lake City and and every once in a while when people point to our hillsides in in slow and call them mountains, I, I kind yeah. of roll my eyes a bit and say, Oh my gosh, you think those are mountains. No, 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 no. Right. Um Salt Lake, you know, living in Salt Lake City means you're you're really within 20 minutes of being able to be in the national forests, um, be within federally designated wilderness areas. It's really easy to engage in mountain sports. Right. And you really, I mean, where I lived in Salt Lake City, I, I didn't need to do more than walk um, a few feet out of my door, walk up a, a canyon, and I would be separate from from what felt like civilization at that time. I would go up right. to a place called Neff's Canyon or Mill Creek Canyon and go for hikes by myself. Um, sometimes I would take my my little dog Moose with me, who was a an apricot poodle who never weighed more than ten pounds. But oh, we would wow. be he was my he was my adventure poodle, and we would. Um, go find some great relief from being um, being among people in the in the mountains right outside my house, and it was it was wonderful. Right, that's my so that's my or that's my my favorite thing about living there. Right, and so let's um, let's talk a little bit about how that that um, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't that spur your your interest um, in in moving forward in um, as an undergraduate at the University of Utah. So tell us, uh, tell us about that experience. You know, obviously, um, going to, to college is a, is a, 
is a huge life event and um mm-hmm. and and making a decision to stay at home in in um yeah in a, in a place you know you had moved around quite a bit and and so mm-hmm. deciding to um to to go to the University of Utah what was that decision like and and um and was that connection to nature a part of what you decided to study um, definitely about that, that definitely contributed what to what I wanted to study. Um, going to the University of Utah was more of a financial decision, um, mainly because, well, my parents had never, um, so my, my parents were very pragmatic about things like education. They never pressured me or my brothers to aim for schools like, you know, Ivy League or expensive, you know, expensive state schools or anything like that. Right. Um, they had both grown up they had both grown up relatively poor. They lived on military salaries. Um, and so, um, thinking about, you know, what a, a Harvard or a, a Ivy league type of education looked like to them looked like it was really expensive. And so, um, we, and, and again, my brothers and I never had pressure to, to set our goals like that. So, um, I learned, you know, I, I applied to the University of Utah and a couple of, the, of other schools that I had no, you know, I knew I would never get into Berkeley. I knew I never would get into UCLA. I didn't have the kind of, um, I mean, I had the, I had somewhat of the grades and the scores to get into those, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't too excited about that. So going to the University of Utah was an easy choice. Um, it was, you know, as a, a state school and I was able to, you know, get, grid tuition and not worry about having too much debt after school. But, um, when I got there, I started off, um, unlike Cal Poly where you have to choose your major when you apply. Um, I got my GEs out of the way and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I came in, um, your listeners should know, I actually benefited a lot from the AP system as well, as well as from, um, some congruent classes I took at my high school that gave me additional, college credit. And I, I initially started, um, shocker. I initially started as a a chemistry major (laughs) and then I, I didn't like being a chemistry major. It was a lot of time inside and labs and Mm -hmm. a lot of math that I didn't really enjoy doing. And then I changed to biology major and they Mm -hmm. said, surprise, you still have to do a lot of math. (laughs) Just the way, I mean, I, it's not that I don't like math. I actually really enjoy the concepts in math, but it was um, the pace that the, the institutions taught at was too fast for me to keep up. And um, I went and talked to an advisor and um, his name was um, Dr. Montag. um, And I still remember him because I took a number of classes from him. And he said, well, you know, we're starting a new major. He asked me why I, why I wanted to be in biology. And I said, well, I, I, I really, I love, I love the outdoors. I love being outside. I love being in nature. Uh Um, And he said, well, you know, we're, we're starting up a new major at the university of Utah and it's called environmental studies. And we haven't had a graduating class yet. You would be part of the first group. Um, Right now, it's just a couple of required classes. And then you really get to design your own major around electives, you know, the classes that you're interested in. And um, I thought that was fabulous. Um, They actually, it was one of the first programs where they had this huge lecture. And then you got to um, every two weeks, it was a quarter system. And every two weeks, you got to learn from a different professor from a different area. So geography, economics, psychology, communication. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was four teachers and it was, it was wonderful. It was, it was one of the, the best kind of classes I've had. 
And then I got to pick my curriculum. So whenever a student comes and talks to me about doing an ICS, I get kind of excited, like, oh, what, you know, right. what are we going to do? What are you, right. I, I did that. What are you going to do? Tell everyone and, what ICS um, is. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, individualized course of study. So when a student right. wants to, wants to really kind of focus around a, an area that's not quite in our curriculum. Yeah. And, um, and one really, like, I, it's still one of those formulating crystallizing memories in my head. Um, this is right around 1996, 97. And, um, a student, we, a, a really controversial thing happened in Utah that year when I was mm. taking this, this class, um, mm. the establishment of the grand staircase Escalante national monument. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 1.8 million acres. It's in Southern Utah and mm-hmm. Bill Clinton established it, um, really early in the morning, um, <laughs> East coast time. Oh. And he, um, it, it felt like for most of the people in the state of Utah, um, were really upset about it. Um, they felt like the federal government had come in and stolen a bunch of land. And so you maybe figure that in an environmental studies class, this became a topic of conversation. And this crystallizing memory in my head, once the geography professor, you know, introduced this to a room full of 60 people, you know, what do you all think about that? You know, this is, it's federally designated land. It's not the state of Utah's land. It's managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Nobody lives in the space where they've established it. Um, And it's, there are some historical and um, indigenous Native American sites there. Um, there's also some incredible landscape that we think is worth protecting. So that's why it was established. And I remember this this girl that I I don't I don't know her name or anything, but I remember I was sitting about four people away from her in this big stadium kind of space. And she raised her hand and she was called on and she said, How dare they take our land from us? How dare they just take it out from under our feet? Mm-hmm. And after, after you know, after I learned about the monument being established, I was excited about it because here was this this place that would come under federal management. It would open it up for recreation and tourism. Um, there are these beautiful places within it, little little Calf Creek River. There's there's just amazing places inside of it. Protected also, and I looked at protected also, and I, I looked at her like, wow. I didn't know somebody could be so not excited about something that I think is so exciting. Mm -hmm. And it crystallized in me this idea that, you know, I might love the environment and I might want to protect all of this stuff, but it's way more complex than just, you know, having a a love for these spaces. People don't just look at land. They don't look at beautiful landscapes and see opportunities for, spiritual contemplation or recreation, they see use values out of it. They see, mm-hmm. they see jobs, they see, um, you know, economic stability in these places. And mm-hmm. with the, you know, the snap of a finger, Bill Clinton had, for a lot of people, he had taken those prospects away from many people. Mm-hmm. And so it actually made me start thinking about the fact that, um, and I was already interested in travel and tourism at that point too. And it, it made me think like, wow, this is, um, this is interesting stuff. You know, people have all have really complex feelings about these spaces and somebody who's in an environmental studies major, just like I am, who I would think had, you know, ideas that aligned with mine. She doesn't, she, she had very different ideas. And so it just, that kind of started me on the path toward 
toward where I am now. I think, I think that's the the moment where I really, you know, there's a, a somewhat swervy line, but definitely right. from that point. Yeah. Right. Well, let's get into that. That's a good segue, um, into, yeah. um, in, into your master's program and, yeah. uh, and what you ended up studying, um, at the university of Utah, like you told us, you, you ended up getting your master's there, uh, at the mm-hmm. university of Utah. Mm-hmm. And that's what ultimately mm-hmm. led to our connection because, um, yeah. uh, you now you decided to get a master's in, in, um, parks, recreation and tourism. Um, so tell us a little I bit did. about, um, you know, that process, I guess that was like a two year period. Yeah. And I know obviously that you were awarded, um, a fellow, a prestigious fellowship as part of that. And, yeah. um, uh, so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience and what that was like. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I want to say about all of this is how critical mentors are, especially Mm -hmm. when you start graduate school. So um, when I was finishing up my undergrad, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And there wasn't, you know, one thing about creating a new degree is that you should be able to talk to students about what they can do with that degree after. And pretty much, you know, I don't think they either they hadn't gone through that or I didn't ask the right questions. But um, what I saw a lot of people doing in the major was going and working for nonprofit environmental or environmental organizations. And one thing that you do when you start off in, envi- in a small environmental organization is you do phone banking. And for those that that might not even be much of a job anymore, but um, what it means is going and volunteering for, um, you know, I volunteered for the Utah Rivers, um, Utah Rivers Project and the Southern Utah Wilderness Association. And I, I called strangers and asked them to vote certain ways. And I, it did not take me long to realize that that was not what I wanted to do because in, um, the state of Utah, the majority of people, um, are very utilitarian about their public lands and want them used for the the highest economic value predominantly. And so I got a lot of people hanging up on me or telling me to go places that I didn't want to go. So, um, <laughs> a, lot I, folks, um, a lot of folks like that girl in your class. Yeah, exactly. And at the time, um, my mom, Janine, was working in the Parks, Recreation and Tourism Department at the University of Utah. And I... Um, you know, I, I still lived at home. We would often commute into campus together, although we didn't always. And um, I think on a couple, there were a couple of days where my car might have been in the shop and I was driving into the campus with her and her boss, a man named Gary Ellis, Dr. Gary Ellis, um, who I who I knew because my, you know, he was a great boss. And my mom, um, my mom was cl- my mom and my dad were close to him. And um, Gary said, well, you know, why don't you think about doing getting a master's pro- master's degree? Um, and I had actually helped him a little bit um, with um, a paper that he was writing. He paid me to help him um, when I was in a stats class. He he was like, well, I'll give you some help learning those stats. And he, <laughs> he yeah. sat me down and helped. Yeah, he did. He he helped me learn how to, he, he helped me interpret stat, stats. And he was writing a, a paper um, for something. And I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but um, so I, I, I knew him a little bit then too. And then he said, well, you know, you, you're, you're, you're quick on the study of learning about statistics. And I know you're, you, you're very curious about the world. So why don't you think about doing a master's degree? And I said, oh, a master's degree in what? And he said, well, well, this parks, recreation and tourism. Yeah. And 
I said, Oh, well, I'll think about that. And I did. And, um, <laughs> and I, he, and I applied and I actually got a, I actually got a, you know, a, a graduate assistant scholarship and I went to work for this. My, my assistantship with was, was with the state of Utah parks and recreation office. Um, so I got to go work in their research arm and, um, uh, worked with really, really great people. Um, Terry and Jamie were their names to, to, two men. Terry was my direct boss. And then Jamie was the research coordinator and Jamie taught me how to do survey research. And, um, we talked, he was a big fan of the Beatles and Monty Python. And I grew wow. up in a house where we listened to the Beatles all the time and watched Monty Python movies and shows. So okay. um, Jamie was great, greatly great mentor. And um, yeah, I um, I learned a lot about that process, got to go out to a lot of Utah State Parks. Um, anybody who's listening to this, I cannot, I cannot overemphasize how important the state of Utah was to my my own environmentalism and my love for nature. It's just mm. um, an incredibly beautiful place. So if you have opportunities to go to any of these places, please do. But yeah, Bryce, um, Can- Bryce Canyon I, I, and Zion. Yeah. And- yeah. All and the Utah, park, the, the state parks, those are national parks, but the state parks, there's mm. beautiful, beautiful state parks. Um, Give us a couple. And, um, oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. Now at the top of my head, I can't think of any. Oh, there's um, there's actually, there's actually a, a um, there's a famous Red Rock Canyon in mm. outside of Las Vegas, but there's another Red Rock Canyon outside of St. George, Utah, that is ah. lesser known, but equally as beautiful. Um, ah. The Jordan River State Park is actually a beautiful state park in Utah where there's actually a golf course. That's mm. the thing is that there are a lot of golf courses at Utah State Parks, Brian. I, I don't know if oh. I've ever told you that, but there are lots yeah. of really good golf courses there. Mm. Um, but, um, like a trip in our future. I know. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, that was for a year and then I did, um, my second assistantship was actually serving as the, um, the academic advisor for undergraduate students in that major. Yeah. And I, I discovered through that and Gary actually had me teach a couple of computer classes (laughs) while I was doing that too. And I learned that I loved teaching and I loved that I learned that I loved working with students um, as they were putting together their academic plans and um, mm-hmm. graduating. And the funny thing is, is that I actually advised people that I went to high school with ah, because they had, nice. they had, um, yeah, Jesse, um, Jesse and his wife, I can't remember her name at the moment, but um, in Utah, it's really common for people once they turn 18 and they graduate from high school, they, if there are members of the LDS church, they go on missions for two years, they go right, on right. Um, LDS missions and then they come home and they, they start college. So because I was in college and I, I wrapped it up a little earlier because of all my AP credit and congruent classes, I ended up advising some people that <laughs> I was the same school. age as because they, wild. yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, um, I learned that about myself and toward the end of my master's degree, I was, you know, I'm not, a. a this is going to come across as I'm not a very good future planner. Like I didn't have a five-year, 10-year plan where I knew oh, I was going to no. get a PhD. Well, toward the end of my master's, I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do next. You know, I got this master's now, maybe I'll go back and work for Utah State Parks and Gary again, um, the importance of mentors. He said, well, have you ever thought of going on to get your PhD? You know, you've, you've done the teaching thing. You've advised students. You've done research. This mm-hmm. is, you're writing a thesis. Um, why don't you think about that? And I want you to talk to my friend, Phil Ray, because he's, you know, he's a, a, another academic department and he he's an advisor with this um, 
Dustin Fellowship, um, named after um, Dan Dustin's parents. Um, Dan Dustin is kind of a, um, I don't know, what would you call Dan Dustin? A, a legend? Pillar of a pillar of the the pillar, um, yeah a pillar a pillar of our academic discipline yeah a, a, par- a pillar of our academic discipline and um, uh-huh. Gary helped me apply for this um, this basically a scholarship to go to NRPA uh-huh. and um, be connected with a mentor um, and that mentor takes you around NRPA introduces you to people helps you go to different you know meet different academic institutions who are also attending NRPA. And um, I did that and I got hooked up with, um, as my mentor, Phil Ray, who was the the department head at the NC State Parks, Recreation and Tourism Program. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, Phil Ray, um, a really wonderful person. Mm -hmm. And he did, he, he, um, he said, now um, I, I'm going to make sure you're introduced to the NC State people, but I want you to make sure that you've talked to everybody because I don't want you to pick NC State just because you know me. Mm-hmm. And so I went over and I talked to the Clemson folks, the Texas A&M folks, the Penn State folks, Illinois. I can't. There were tons of people he introduced me to, and I actually went and visited those campuses. But at the end of it, I I was like, I really like North Carolina. You know, I went and visited and everybody I met there was so great. It felt like a family there. It was just, um, mm-hmm. it was really great. And um, yeah, I ended up going to NC State. Oh, I should, should I, should I talk about what my master's thesis was on? I don't know if that's interesting no. to anybody. No. Okay. No, no. let's, let's okay. not, bore, let's not bore them with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't really want to bore them with that either. No, let's not. I don't not. want to bore them with uh, that either. So, so yeah, so that, that's how you made your way to North Carolina. So, um, mm-hmm. very exciting. And obviously that's where I met you and Moose and that's yes. where, um, and that's where Moose ultimately, um, let me in to uh to become your your boyfriend because he uh that's right he, he accepted me and um he approved of you he, he Moose was very shy of men he did yeah. not there were only two men that we can remember i can remember him ever being warm with and one mm-hmm. was my older brother rick rick was mm-hmm. his favorite and then when moose came to north carolina with me the only other man was was you he yeah. sat down on a couch and he snuggled with you yeah he was uh me and moose and moose and i um uh yeah we we bonded and uh yeah i i, I loved moose quite a bit and um yeah you know we um so so uh dr jerusha greenwood and i were uh were graduate classmates together at nc state and um and we ended up having um desks right next to each other in the graduate lab that I later learned. I may have had something to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I later learned that uh that Jerusha may or may not have had something to do with that arrangement. Um but anyway, so we were, you know, we were graduate <laughs> classmates first. And so we developed um, you know, uh a friendship and and um and then eventually, uh, what happened, uh, Jerusha? Did you invite yourself to a uh, to a uh, to a fest, a music festival? Was that was that how it went? Well, maybe. Well, you know, the first trip we took together <laughs> was to collect data out at Wrightsville Beach. I That's don't know right. if you remember we that. Yeah, we did. We yeah. did. Yeah. We worked on a paper together for a class. 
Um, well, that was more we, of a, that was did. more of a work school thing, and um, that was a work school yeah. thing. Yeah, we went out. We had a, a friend Ivy, and we we mm-hmm. went out there and we collected data. Mm-hmm. But yes, I um, you were talking to me about going to Merle Fest in the graduate lab, and I said, "Oh, that sounds really interesting. I've never been to a music festival before," and yeah. so she hinted I invited and I myself. Well, yeah, she hinted, and um, here's the thing. She hinted. And I wasn't <laughs> very good at taking hints. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, but when she asked, could she go? I was like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, sure, you can go. And um, you know, it was the type thing where um, my friends and I had um, been going to this music festival, Merle Fest, in Wilkesboro, North Carolina named after Doc Watson's son, Merle Watson. And um, for those who are unaware, Merle Fest is, a, is the pre, one, of, one of the preeminent bluegrass festivals in the world. And, you know, anywhere from 75 to 100,000 people attend over a four-day period. And there's, um, there's camping. And my friends and I had, um, you know, w- we had a, a site that was like our site every year that we that we got and it was even named after you know the the lane uh, sir lancelot lane that you that you used to access it was is named after my best friend and so yeah jerusha got to experience um me, me and all of my uh back in my, <laughs> my glory my glory drinking and partying days and so um <laughs> yeah she got to experience me um coming back into the tent after uh too much bourbon and too much beer and too much bluegrass uh, throughout the day, and uh, somehow uh, still wanted to be my friend. And uh, <laughs> we ended up uh, going on a date, uh, an official date. What was that? The next week after we got back. I from, don't know. Well, I was pretty impressed festival. that you. I just I re- re- I was really impressed by the fact that um, I I guess you didn't have tickets when we were driving out there, oh, and then right. you. So it was the plan was to get tickets when we that's got there. And story. I thought, okay, that's fine. And um, we got on the the buses from our site, which was actually a, a grassy area outside of a water treatment plant. Yeah. yeah. And um and um he um we got to the gate at Merle Fest and you for you I I don't know what you saw, but you saw a guy who was selling tickets, not at the ticket booth, but kind of out front. And you went up and you asked him what kind of, you know, t- t- if you could buy the tickets and they turned out to be VIP tickets. Yeah. VIP so I, backstage yeah, pass tickets. I yeah. Been, yeah. I had been, I guess that was like the seventh or eighth year uh, I had been. And I had always like bought, you know, just the general tickets, just like everybody else that I knew. Um, yeah. And yeah, this guy was selling VIP tickets, backstage passes for the same price as regular tickets. So like, I mean, who in their right mind would not do that. Right. So um, it was the first mm-hmm. time I'd ever been without tickets also. And so, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I, I ended up um, showing Jerusha quite the experience, let's say. It was, right? it was, it was incredible. Quite the co-created experience. Right. Because <laughs> she, she also, that was around the time. Um, that was also around the time that um oh wow I'm blanking on her name who was Nora so, Jones Nora Jones was super popular around that time and Jerusha um 
sort of vaguely resembled Nora Jones. I, I, I had long, had really long dark hair, 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 curly. And... Yeah, and so most of the time, we didn't even have to flash our VIP badge because they just thought I was walking around <laughs> with Nora Jones. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we had quite the we had quite the blast. And then, um, yeah, the rest is history. Next thing you know, we shared yeah. a tent. And then next thing you know, we were... Uh, moving in together in historic Oakwood and, and Raleigh and, um, and, uh, and the rest is history. Let's talk a little bit about, um, getting a PhD and, and that process of, um, of, you know, becoming a a professor, right? Like that, that PhD is such a, um, you, you know, people get PhDs for various reasons, uh, right. I mean, but the predominant reason is to become a professor. Right. And, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So, talk about what that experience was like at NC State and how you ended up um, out here in San Luis Obispo. Like, like get a, get us a, get us to slow. So, I um, when I applied to NC State um, after Dr. Ray um, gave me, you know, some some good reasons to come to NC State. One of which was that they had this um, program called geographic information systems as part of the department. And you could right, take those yeah. classes too. And that really interests me. I'm a map nerd. I love looking at maps. I love, I can spend hours with an atlas just looking through through maps. And that really excited me to the prospect of that. And I was awarded something um, when I applied and got into the program called the Hoffman Forest Fellowship, right? which basically meant I was able to start um, my PhD debt-free, my tuition was paid. I actually got a small salary mm-hmm. um, and I was um, encouraged to just start working on my studies, start working on you know, mm-hmm. what I wanted to write my dissertation on. So the first year I did that. And then the second year I was able to start teaching classes. And, um, and I guess, you know, one thing that I'm wrong, yeah. um, but, but geographic information systems, that was, um, that was the early days of that, right? Was Hugh Devine, yeah. Hugh Devine at NC yes. State was, um, was instrumental in starting GIS mm-hmm. or just starting the program at NC State? It was, um, he was kind of both. He was important okay. in, um, and, and it kind of goes back to the the opening up of um, satellite data to the to the public and being able to uh-huh. use that data to do a lot of in-depth studying. And, and essentially what GIS allows you to do is you, is you can look at the combination of geographic, demographic data, geographic and demographic data in a lot of ways to kind of look for patterns across a mm-hmm. landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, there's much more like the, it, the, the field itself has advanced so much more than, and than past what I, what I did, but right. you really could study really interesting things like, um, you know, health disparities and, you know, depending on where people lived in certain spaces. Yeah. And so that really interested me. And I, I actually, my minor is in geographic information systems. It's not, you know, it's not a required thing when you get a PhD to have a minor in it, but it was part of my, that was part of my education was to get a minor in, um, in geographic information systems there. Oh, um, okay. I think it actually might've been required for us. Cause I, was I, it required I at NC State? Too. yeah, I think it might've been you required did? for us. Um, it, it may not, okay. it may not still be required, but I had to have a minor as well. Cause remember I was okay. a minor in psychology. That's right. That's right. So, um, but I really, you know, one thing, I, I guess one thing is that I'm I'm just a, a naturally curious person. I and and you know this just from you know me nerding out on 
podcasts about weird stuff and yeah. and diving into books and reading up on on stuff but yeah she's the greatest um, person to I, have on a on a trivia team she's very, very good. <laughs> you you, you and, want dr Vu on your trivia team <laughs> and i um i just really enjoy i i enjoy the process of learning i enjoy i actually am I'm humbled every time I think about all the stuff there is still to learn. And I just yeah. love being a learner. Mm-hmm. And um, so that part of being a PhD and then becoming a professor, I think that's, um, I think Gary Ellis saw that in me. And yeah. that's why he pushed, you know, gently led me in this direction because he saw somebody who was naturally curious, somebody who enjoyed the process of of learning and research and teaching and so he really guided me in that direction. And I'm going to be forever grateful for, for so many things, um, yeah. for him pushing me in this direction. But, um, I, um, I took that same idea with me that, that development in tourism is just really complex. And, and yeah. so I, I, and, and I've always been somebody's very interested in sustainability and, and this idea of how do you make sustainable tourism destinations from a, a resident's point of view. And so um, not a company's point of view, not a state's point of view, but an actual, you know, what does the community want out of this mm-hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what I I studied was sustainability and tourism for my PhD. So really looking at, you know, what are the factors in a community that contribute it to it being sustainable or not sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really where in, in terms of the field and what I study, that's um, where my heart is. And it's also, it, again, it's something that demands continuous intellectual study. You know, when I first started, it was all about the environment. You know, that's what I was interested in. How does the the change that tourism demand affect the environment where people live? And now it's all about, you know, when I think about it, it's all about social, economic, and environmental justice, not just sustainability. It's how mm-hmm. do you create not just sustainable places, but just places for local mm-hmm. residents in tourism. So that's really where that's kind of come. Yeah. All right. Well, so take us, uh, take us to how you got to, uh, San Luis Obispo. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, I was along for the ride, so I know how you You were, (laughs) but, um, did we, do we, did we come around a full circle to that university of Utah again or what? Um, we kind of did, um, because, um, I had met Dr. Bill Hendricks at a conference. I can't remember which NRPA now, but I met him at a conference. My friend Bridget, who was a student with me at the university of Utah, introduced me to him because she knew him from somewhere. Bill knows everyone. Um, but, um, Bridget introduced us and I thought, you know, after talking to him a little bit, we had dinner and, um, with a, a whole bunch of people. And I thought to myself, this guy's a good guy. I really like Bill Hendricks. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, maybe one day I'll get to work with him. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he was at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And um, at some point it, during this whole process, my brother got married and my brother Chris got married and he moved with his family down to um, Buellton, California. Which and is about an hour I, away from San Luis Obispo. Which is about an hour away from here. And I got a chance to visit and see him. And we came up and we before I even thought about living here. Um, but I just thought, well, this is a really nice, nice spot. The San Luis Obispo, the central coast, mm-hmm. it's kind of a little secret part of California. Mm-hmm. And when I was finishing up writing my dissertation, finishing up my comprehensive exams, which are part of getting a PhD, um, a job came open and it was in tourism, focus on tourism. Mm-hmm. And 
I applied for it. I actually applied twice. I don't know if you remember that. I, I applied did, twice for this job. Yeah, I remember. I bombed. I bombed the first telephone interview. <laughs> well, I, I did. I, I don't remember you saying that, but okay. I did. I did. I bombed the first telephone interview and okay. um I wasn't when I think about it, I wasn't quite ready yet. I hadn't right. wasn't far enough along in my dissertation. Right. And um they didn't fill the job and they put it when I a year about a year later actually when it um and when we um were planning our wedding, um I um the job the job announcement went out, out again and I applied for it and went to interview in San Luis Obispo. And it was one of these, it was almost the exact same weather that we're having these last couple of weeks. It was rainy and dreary, but it was yeah. also beautiful and green. And um, Bill was great. And I fell in love with the students. They were just amazing. They were so smart and considerate and just asked. One thing they did was ask me the best questions as part of the interview process. Um, and I, it's the only place I applied for a job and I got it. Right. Right. And then you had to tell your uh your fiance at the time that uh he was gonna be moving to San Luis Obispo and uh <laughs> and I had to look that up on a map. Um and I wasn't very good at GIS <laughs> and mapping, and so uh yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, yeah, we made the trek. Uh we made the trek across country yeah. and um and, with our two dogs. Uh, yeah, we had uh, two dogs at the time and uh, in the car. I don't know how we, now that I think about it, I don't know how we made that. I don't know how we, we made that, but that was, we we somehow did. We visited we friends. Did. How did friends let us have two dogs in their houses um, as we were driving? It was tricky. That was, yeah, that seems was, a little tricky. It, um, yeah. But my memory's not good enough to remember all of that. I do remember, like I recently said at Dr. Bill Hendricks retirement celebration, I do remember crunching the numbers um, for what you would be making and what I would be making, which was not much. They they hired me as a, they, they agreed as a part of Jerusha's thing was that I could finish my dissertation and that I could teach a couple classes for the department and um, possibly apply for a job that um, was supposedly opening the next year and in the future i just yeah. remember like i never i don't think i really talked to you about it because i didn't want you to i didn't want you to worry as well but i just kept crunching the numbers and the numbers didn't really work and um and we finally ended up talking about it and uh and you know you you i think you just said well we just have to trust bill and uh and we did we trusted bill and we the did numbers, yeah. the numbers did end up working out um, yeah. when, when we added summer school pay, when we added, like, <laughs> yes, uh, exactly additional, right. Yeah. We, it only worked with that additional pay. It didn't work. The, I, I was right. Then I crunched the numbers correctly, but yes. we had, you were still teaching it. Yeah. You were still teaching at NC state too. Yeah. We had not factored in a lot of other things. Like I was still teaching yeah. at NC yeah. state and I was able to continue teaching, um, online education for NC state for yeah. another almost 10 years there. And then, yeah, so we ended up making it work through, through lots we of did. different avenues and whatnot. And so why don't you, if you will, um, Jerusha, why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like um, those first few years, you know? Um, so for those who are, are unaware, um, 
they're similar to the hierarchy that you see in in other organizations. There is a hierarchical mm-hmm. structure in um, in academia as well, and so mm-hmm. um, you know you have uh, if you start on what's called the tenure track, you start as mm-hmm. an assistant professor, and uh, mm-hmm. there is a. If, if you don't come in with any time uh, allotted for you, kind of like the AP credits uh, in college. Right, right? exactly. If you don't yeah. have any of those AP credits, and AP credits, when manifested in academia, would be like a postdoc or like right. if you had a previous position at another university. And so you did not. You were coming out as a PhD student, so you had a six-year period as um, an assistant professor. And um, so I wonder if you can reflect on what that six-year period was like. You had two kids during that six-year period. Mm-hmm. You yeah. had a, a husband who was 2,500 miles away from home and away from all of his friends and all of that. Um, so uh, I wonder, t- talk to us a little bit what about what those first six years were like in particular. Yeah. Well, if I can remember correctly, because my memory isn't great, I, it was. Um, uh, um, I think I. I don't know if I recognized how stressed out I was all the time until <laughs> reflection afterwards. And I think right. the benefit is that you're always stressed out as a PhD student. So when you go into a, you know, your first academic job, you're just kind of maintain that that steady state of just being stressed. But um, right. um, you know, learning how to really be a university teacher was, you know, part of the training, part of getting used to, used to putting a whole, you know, a whole curriculum together for a class and and teaching yeah. that, teaching in those ways. Um, again, Cal Poly students are, are great and they're really supportive. So that made that job easy, but also continuing on with publishing for my dissertation, um, you know, writing, writing a couple articles and getting those published, because that's one thing that you do when you're trying to get tenure is that you're trying mm-hmm. to disseminate your work, um, going, doing work and going to um, lots of conferences at the state and national level. Um, so lots of travel, um, getting to know people in the industry around the state. Um <clears throat> I don't know, am I answering the question you were kind of interested? Yeah, for sure. But we were also really lucky in that we were we were welcomed into a to what felt like a family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really um, supportive. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean I I, inviting I I laugh with people that um those first uh that that first month in in San Luis Obispo, uh we both bought wetsuits and we both swam in the (laughs) ocean. Uh and we both swam in the ocean. We 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 did board meetings with with um, with Dr. Hendricks, um, yeah. where I was kind of pretending like me and my little T Rex arms could uh, eventually learn how to surf. <laughs> That's which, right. Uh, That's was, right. I, I did not yeah. learn how to surf, but he he tried with me, and um, but uh, I was in the ocean in a wetsuit. Uh, I guess that what was that three or four times in the first month and maybe uh, yeah yeah I well think for I've, six months I think I think it was more like six months for six yeah. months and then since in the yeah. last fifteen years I've been 
in the water in a wetsuit like maybe twice <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's cold it's the it's pacific cold. it's cold not like yeah. an east coast ocean but um right. but we yeah really i think that's welcomed. a really good point yeah, yeah we were welcomed in and actually before i i mean before i even had the job um dr goldenberg invited me to write a chapter for a book that she was putting together with a colleague about yeah. um the use of movies in in recreation classrooms so i actually wrote a chapter on the motorcycle diaries and created a yeah, curriculum around that. using that in a class and um but really it's a really collaborative environment um and that's the culture is just inviting people if you've got a research project you're starting to work on and you want to invite somebody to be on it especially as a the, a junior faculty member um marnie um got tenure i think she she got promotion and tenure within the first couple of years that we were here and she mm-hmm. invited me to to do you know just presentations at conferences and it was it was great to to be welcomed in like that um mm-hmm. jeff jacobs was here too and he was very mm-hmm. supportive and collaborative mm-hmm. and then bill and was Cynthia able Moyer. you know and cynthia moyer um another she was a lecturer for the department but also very very supportive and and that was the key was that it wasn't a it wasn't a, a competitive environment at all which you you actually do see in some academic departments where there's a lot of competition but there was no sense of competition at all. It was all about um, collective success. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. everybody succeeds when just one person succeeds. So a, a right. lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, and fostering that environment of um, of support is is a really important thing, I think, to both you and me um, moving forward. As you know, as we are uh, becoming the the more uh, some of the more senior, the more senior the faculty, and as the uh, as the gray has has gotten into to to my beard <laughs> and your hair as we as we've moved along, yeah. and so. Dr. Uh, and so Dr. Greenwood, Dr. Dr. Rue was was promoted to associate professor and then um, mm-hmm. and then recently to full professor. So it goes associate right. to full and and um, you, you ended up, uh, of course, getting tenure as part of that. And um, and mm-hmm. several years back, you started as the vice chair of the Academic Senate and um, and you're now um just like we said at the beginning, you were just recently elected the chair of the academic Senate. Mm-hmm. So let's talk. Um, let's talk about that. I know we're skipping some stuff. I know you served. Yeah, we interim, are. That's okay. Served as interim department head, and you've done all kinds of different things. But um, let's um, you know, we don't have too much more time left. Let's um, let's get into that. Tell people. Yeah. Explain to people what the academic Senate is. Um. At Cal Poly, but this is this is it's yeah. the same or very similar at universities worldwide. Right. right. So the the um, in general at universities in California and in the United States, the faculty own um, it's it's a faculty ownership of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So um, the Academic Senate really writes um, the governance documents. I guess you could say the resolutions around the curriculum. And we inform, we help inform the policy the university writes regarding curricular issues. So that's that's the key role of 
um, an academic senate. So any re- resolutions around how many credit hours an internship can be, um, you know, what what com- what's composed of an excused absence. Um, with our semester transition now that we're going through, lots of resolutions are being written to help guide the mm-hmm. the transition from a quarter system to a, a semester system. Um, and it's also where um, a concept called shared governance happens between the faculty and the, at the administration. So right. it's um, an opportunity for the faculty to have a seat at the table when administrative decisions are being made about Cal Poly. Um, so we work closely with the, the president's office and the, um, the provost office. And the provost is kind of the, for lack of a better word, it's she's the, that position is the president of the academic parts of the university. So she's the the head of academic, she's kind of the head of academic personnel. She's helps um, lead um, curricular related issues. Um, I'm not, I'm not stating these things very well, but she, for for lack of a better word, she's kind of in charge of what, what goes on on the faculty and student side of things. Yeah. Yeah. The academic side of of the equation, right? Yeah. So yeah. To a to a large extent, the the academic senate chair is almost like this, this not the second in charge or the second in command, right. but um, you know, after the president and the provost, like that's a it's a pretty prestigious position, and so right. I want to make yeah. sure that I yeah. want to make sure we're giving your you your due there. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a it's a very prestigious position, and I'm I couldn't be any more proud of you and. Um, and uh yeah just uh you know obviously want to to give you give you kudos there you know we've talked a little bit and i want us to end um by talking about this um the the students are what set us apart at cal poly i think more than anything else and and obviously that's that's very rooted obviously in in learn by doing and um yes and uh, our students and their dedication to um their dedication to the cause if you will right of 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 helping us to manifest learn by doing in in such an important way i think is is a really important element of what we do and you know obviously the the pandemic put up put a damper on that. I mean, the, the right. pandemic made, um, I don't know that, that I'm not sure exactly how to articulate it, but, um, it, it hurt our efforts in terms of, um, uh, professional development in terms of connecting with students in terms mm-hmm. of lots of different things. And, and one of the yeah. things that I see in moving out of the pandemic and, and getting back to normal, so to speak, there's there's mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. no such thing as back to normal. I don't believe because um, right. what it, what is normal anyway, right? But but right. But, but re-embracing that professional development, I think, is is mm-hmm. really really key. And I wonder if you can yeah. just reflect on that. And you know, I know how student centered you are. I know that, that you've won the advisor, the advisor award, um, for, for faculty advising. And I know how much that means to you. So I, I wonder if you can just reflect on the things that we might be able to do moving forward to, to kind of re-embrace that, that connection with our students. Wow. Um, I think, um, a lot of it has to do with, um, 
there's a there's a pair I, I I don't know if it's a parable parable, but it's this idea that there's a the story of a a man who's walking on a beach and the the a storm has um kind of thrown all of the sea stars by that beach onto the beach. And he's going across the beach and he's picking up the starfish and he's throwing them as far as he can back into the water so that they don't die on the the beach. And another person comes walking down the beach and, and he kind of looks at these thousands of starfish that are, you know, washed up in the, on the beach. And he's watching this one person throw each starfish sea star back in the water. And it just looks like an insurmountable task. And the, the, the person who's observing this goes up to the man who's throwing all the star sea stars back into the water. And he says, this, this is impossible. What, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're never going to save all of them. And, um, it does, you know, what does it matter? Why, why does it matter that you're doing this? And the, the man who's, you know, saving the sea stars says it matters to the ones I save. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I still get teary when I hear about that, but, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's a solution to the co you know, helping the COVID generation, which I actually feel a part of because I feel like it completely changed my mindset too. But all I know is that you can only do this work student by student and um, the connections that we have to our students, making that those individual connections to students and making sure that they know that they matter, that this so much of what we've just experienced was unprecedented. Um, and, and we don't have all the answers, you know, is it, however much we feel like adults, sometimes I wake up and I still feel like I'm 16 years old and completely clueless when I wake up in the morning, Mm -hmm. but the best we can do is show up for them and show up for each other and make sure that they know that the, the things they want to do in their life matter and that they are capable of doing all of these things that they see themselves doing and how it's, it's their job to write, you know, I'm I'm a fan of science fiction and I think the future is science fiction and we're all able to write it. We're able to write our futures. It's not all it's not already written down and and students as those individual starfish once we help them get back into the ocean, um they get to help write that story and that's what excites me and makes me makes me really happy to be in classrooms with them every day. Right. Well, um <laughs> Our listeners, our listeners should know that um, I threw that on you, and uh, I, I just dropped that in your lap, and and didn't we didn't plan that? But um, I'm over here just uh, openly openly crying as as I uh, as I'm apt to do, and um, I just want to say that that what you just said is is beautiful, and that's why I love you so much. <laughs> and, I love you too, and um, and that's why I think you're such an amazing person and such an amazing scholar and um, such an amazing um, educator. And uh, so we'll leave on that note. Mm. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Appreciate it. Bye.